Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hi, friends, and welcome back to another episode of the Global Marketing Show. As you know, the show is brought to you by Rapport International, and they provide us with a tidbit. So today's tidbit is about emojis. And do you know where the word emoji came from? Well, emojis, you know, are those little picture characters that are associated with cell phone usage in Japan, but they're now used all over the place. The word emoji comes from the Japanese characters, which mean E, picture, emoji is a written character. So it's picture, written character. Isn't that funny? I always wondered where the word emoji came Okay, so speaking of emojis and games and fun things like that, we've got a really interesting guest here. John Covey, I met him through EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, and he began creating board games as a kid, but he waited until 2013 to quit his engineering job and start Genius Games. And between those life events, he was in the army, he earned a master's degree in engineering from Washington University, and he actually taught chemistry and physics to students of many ages. He loves to talk around a campfire, laugh, and probably tell dad jokes <laughs> and hear <laughs> stories right. about real people who did amazing things. So, John, we got to ask, do you have a good dad joke to start us off with? Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> I threw that one out I, at you. Have you heard the one about the sidewalk? No. Yeah, it's all over town. There <laughs> 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 oh, you go. It's, it's funny, I forgot about that in my bio, because I'm actually leaving tomorrow morning to take my kids camping with a couple other dads and it's a great time to sit around the campfire and just hang out so that's what I'll be doing all weekend all right well you better go pull out that dad joke book and have some at the ready right <laughs> refresh right. your memory Absolutely. <laughs> yeah I love that and then telling jokes always makes me think of translation and would that translation actually work mm, in other languages yeah. and that's one that might I'll have yeah, to that I'll have to think of that Pardon? I said that one might. Yep. Yeah, it just might. Yeah. All right. So tell us about Genius Games. Yeah. So like you mentioned, I started it in roughly 2013. So it's about 10 years old now. It started out as a hobby because I'd always loved board games growing up. I'd always designed just kind of my own little fun adventures and games growing up. When I was a teenager, I got a little bit heavier into some of the modern hobby games, played a lot of Risk when I was in the military, and I also really fell in love with the sciences while I was in the military, reading textbooks about you know how atoms worked and the size of the universe was actually very therapeutic when you're in a combat zone wondering, you know, why does this person across from me hate me so much? There's so much about us that's in common. And, and so thinking about science, it was actually very therapeutic in that way. When I came home from Iraq, I finished my degree 
in engineering. My undergraduate was in environmental biology and then a master's in, in engineering. And I, as I was learning a lot of this stuff, I thought, boy, you know, I, I spent a lot of time playing board games and playing games with my friends. Why is there, why are there no games out there themed around like science concepts instead of zombies and dragons and ninjas and science fiction and fantasy? I want a good old game about an atom or, you know, a game about the periodic table or a game about the human cell or, you know, something like that, just a science, a straight science concept. There were none. So I started making some of my own playtesting prototypes and whatnot. And I realized that making a good game was actually far, far harder than I thought. Most of the early designs I created were pretty terrible, but I just kept at it. And I joined some meetup groups of other game designers and play tested all of my products many times over and over and made them better and made them better. And finally, we had a few games that we thought we were good enough to publish. So I found an artist to create some files, found a factory in China, first started in the U.S. looking for factories, and then found some, some cheaper places in China that could produce better quality for less cost. And uh, we launched a Kickstarter campaign and we made our first dollar of revenue, I think October of 2014. And we launched our first game then. And, and since then we have published Boy, I would say about 40 different products. Maybe even we're in the 50s now. We've we've made somewhere probably around two and a half to three million dollars through Kickstarter campaigns and probably another few million dollars through Amazon. And we sell through a lot of different retailers and distributors across the US and across the world. And maybe the the um the biggest retailer is Barnes and Noble. And then in in the UK, it's actually called I think Waterstones. And that's probably the biggest of all of our retail distribution networks. But yeah, that's the that's the thousand foot summary of Genius Games. What's your favorite game that you've created and who's it targeted to? Like, yeah, I, I, I like science, but the science that I like is outside hiking in the woods and learning about plants and touching and yeah. feeling with body. So, you know, the only science type game I can think of is that operation game that buzzes when you hit the side. So it sounds like yours are intellectual, but what makes me want to play it and who are they targeted towards? Yeah, most of our games are. So I, the, the answer is actually a little bit different now than it was, you know, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, the answer was we were targeting a gamer, so usually an adult, who really just wanted a different, a different flavor of games, someone who just didn't want more science fiction or fantasy, but wanted real science. And along the way, we've adapted that a little bit because we've created a few different lines of products. So now we have smaller games for kids. We have lighter card games and games that are not so science intensive. So uh, there's a game called Ecosystem. It's probably our best-selling game. It's basically a game about an ecosystem. You have these little cards and you're passing them around the table. And every time a hand gets passed to you, you get to choose one of the cards from the hand. And it's things like a bear or a hawk or a, a bee or a, a river or some kind of habitat. And you're placing them into a grid on the table and trying to build a habitat. And the different cards score dependent upon what they're next to or what they're closest to or what they're adjacent to or what they're not close to. You know, like wolves want to be off in a pack by themselves. And so that's a really fun, light game, not hard science, family friendly, easy to learn. 
But then we have some other games that are, you know, we have a game called Ion, a compound building game. It's about taking positive and negative ions and building neutral compounds. That's like, you know, chemistry 101. You know, you're going to learn about that in chemistry class. And then we have bigger games about the human cell or about Mendelian genetics. And then smaller math games for kids. And then we recently actually started publishing a full line of double-sided jigsaw puzzles for young kids, floor puzzles that are somewhere about dinosaurs. You have a dinosaur on one side and the skeletal structure of a dinosaur on the other. And then we have anatomy puzzles. So a tiger, a shark, and an owl. You have a picture of a tiger on one side and on the other side, you flip it over and a certified medical illustrator who studied at Johns Hopkins University did a full anatomy illustration of the tiger. So on one side's a tiger, on the other side's the anatomy. So things like that, we're just trying to get creative and think about, you know, how can we just make people fall in love with science through play and, and, and activities and games? Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, so you have this great idea, you start, they sound fun, not boring. Yeah, <laughs> so right. it's not geared towards formal education in the school, but really bringing the family in and a social event to play. That's exactly right. Yeah, our goal was to create games that gamers would choose to play and scientists thought were accurate and correct. And in that way, gamers will play it because they think it's fun. Families will play it because it's constructive and it's fun. And science teachers would pull it in the classroom because it was science accurate. And they could use it as a, as a tool in their classroom. Okay, okay. So you create this. It's in English. You're based yep. out of the United States and you decide to go international. How did you make that decision? Yeah, it's a good question. So kind of the first step was we were going to a number of different conferences throughout the U.S. The largest one is called Gen Con. It happens in Indianapolis once a year. There's about 100,000 people from mostly the United States, but also all over the world who attend that convention. And then there's also another convention called GAMMA, the Game Manufacturers Association of America or something like that. And that's usually in April. And it's just for publishers of games and hobby kind of products, and then retailers, distributors, or licensing partners. And, and so we first got introduced to a few of these distributors. And the idea of, of distribution is the distributor is going to buy product in volume from you. So they're not going to buy 10 units or 20 units. They're going to buy like a few hundred or a few thousand units. They're going to freight it over to their country overseas. And then they're going to sell it to their retailers or customers in those countries. And so we are already in distribution in the U.S. for a few different larger distributors here that focus on the hobby, focus on games and toys and that kind of thing. And so we were approached by a few of these distributors, first in the U.K., and then also in Australia and some in Canada, because those were English-speaking areas. And so it was really easy for us to get us to basically, we were not really the exporter. We would just ship, and we learned, you know, through a lot of trial and error, we would first ship the products directly to their warehouse, say in England or Canada or Australia. And we realized, well, that's not economical because we can't afford to ship, you know, say a half a pallet or a few cases to a retailer in a different country. And so a lot of these larger distributors, what they'll do is they'll set up a freight forwarder in the U.S. So usually in New York or somewhere like that. 
and they'll order products from a whole bunch of U.S. manufacturers or U.S. publishers, and then they'll combine all that product onto one container and then ship that container from New York to wherever their port is. And in that way, they're not sending lots and lots of little tiny shipments. They're, they're very efficiently taking advantage of economies of scale and just shipping one larger container and splitting that cost amongst all the, all the products on that container. So now we have a policy where we'll ship free anywhere in the U.S. to retailers or distributors, but we won't ship overseas. So they have to have a freight forwarder in the United States. And that's how we really first started branching out is through these conventions, setting up this international distribution network. Travel to any of the international markets or have you all done it through the local conferences? Yeah, so I mean, we started out local. There are a lot of international conferences. There's one in Nuremberg. We've never attended it, but it's a it's basically a global show for toys and games. We do or have in the past attended Essen, Essen Board Game Convention. That's actually the largest board game convention in the world. And while we are there, we would meet new distributors and retailers. And, you know, like there's there's only so many, you know, distributors across the world who are doing specifically board game publishing like we are. And so once you once you get into a few countries and you, you get in with a few different distributors, you've kind of saturated that market. The market that we haven't saturated is the educational market. So the funny thing about all of our distributors and all of our licensing partners across the U.S., and we can go into licensing too because that's a completely separate beast, they are all board game publishers. They're hobby-focused. None of these, none of our partners are education-focused. So in the U.S., even though education is a primary market for us, overseas, a lot of our partners are just focused on selling toys and games. How much of your revenue comes from overseas versus the U.S.? Yeah, I'd probably say maybe about 20%. And and part of the reason is we haven't really pushed that hard in, into this. It's always been a sales channel that has just come to us by default. But, you know, 20% is still a few hundred thousand dollars of revenue. And so so that, that that's still a good chunk of change and really adds to the bottom line. And, and, you know, distribution is one thing, but as we've, you know, gone to these game conventions overseas, we started to meet not just distributors, but other publishers. And these publishers, they, they wanted a different model. So they don't want to sell the products. Let's say it's, you know, it's Italy or France or Germany or China or Poland or even Russia, which is all over the news now. Yeah. Um, they don't want to buy English copies and sell English copies in their country. They want to sell copies in that native language. So what we would do with that is we would, we would license products to them under what you would re refer to as a licensing fee or royalty. And the way we distinguish this is, you know, so, so in the US, there might be products that someone else designs or creates, and we will license that product from them. And we will publish it, we'll manufacture it, We'll sell it to our retailers, our distribu distribution channels, and we would give that designer a royalty, right? So it's somewhere between like three to ten percent of the net the the net sales that we'd receive from the sale of that product. We'd give to the designer of that. It's kind of the same thing that we're doing. Wait, run that by me again. Okay, so you've got a publisher that's based in Spain, right? Yeah. Okay, so they want to they want the trans. They want a Spanish version of it. Right. 
So rather than you translating it, you license it to them. That's right. Okay. But then the sales are going through them, right? That's correct. Yeah. So there's a few ways we set it up. The, the, normally we'll, we'll give them, we'll create a licensing agreement. And that license ag agreement will say they can print, you know, X number of units, say they're going to print, you know, 2000 units. They're going to owe us 6% of our MSRP or manufacturer suggested retail price per unit. So let's say it's a $50 game, 6%, that's $3. So they're going to print 2000 units. They're going to owe us $6,000. They're going to have a expiration date on that contract. They're going to have a language restriction. So it has to be in a German, let's say, if it's in Germany. It can't have any English content on it. It has to be purely German. They're going to get a geographic restriction. So they can either sell all across Europe or just in Germany or worldwide, you know, wherever it is. There will be a usually a deposit they have to uh, they spend 50 percent of whatever that total licensing fee is to get the files from us and then they take those files they will translate everything and then they will update the files with the new translated language and then we'll review it make sure the files still look good and then they'll either use their factory or our factory to print those products and usually what we'll try and do is print their products along with an English reprint. That way they're using our factory and we can control qu the, the quality and make sure that the same material is being used for both the English and say the German or the French or the Chinese versions. And then Wait, we'll so you print the one that's translated and then you also print an English one so they can just eyeball it. Right, we'll, we'll, we'll try and print both of them at the same time at the same factory. Because we're already printing these at the factory that we use in English. And so if they're also going to print the same, the exact same game, but in a different language, that means the materials are identical. Only the ink is different. And so we're going to get a cheaper cost per unit because we're, we're, we're spending, we're printing more units. Okay. Okay. All right. So you've got, so you're in 50 countries in seven to eight different languages still? That was a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think it's a lot more now. I mean, we have most major languages plus a lot of more unique languages. So we're obviously English, Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Hebrew, Polish. And we have a, a Russian license that also sells into the Ukraine. And I'm probably forgetting some. I think we have a few languages in, in Korean, a, a few in Southeast Asia. So yeah, there's there's quite a few languages now. And they all kind of work under that similar licensing type of agreement. So how many Spanish-speaking countries are you in? That's a great question. So we license all of our products to a single Spanish publishing company called Mosqueoca, and they are in Spain. And they sell and distribute to most of South and Central America as well, except for Brazil, obviously, because Brazil is going to be Portuguese. Um, okay. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the actual penetration is in the South American and Central American market. You know, if you walked into a game store down there, would you actually see our products in Spanish? And a lot of that would be up to the company in Spain that has the license for the Spanish products and where they are 
uh, what kind of reach they have across the world. Yeah, that's what I, that's exactly what I was wondering about, because if you had one licensing fee in Spain and then, then another one in Mexico, how would you control that global message or consistency across? Um, yeah, I do. right now, when someone gets the Spanish rights, they were large enough that we gave them global rights. So um, they knew, we knew that when we first negotiated that contract with them, that they were going to get all Spanish speaking countries throughout the world. And then what about French? Yeah, when you get into French and German and Dutch, you it, you get it's a little bit messier. But we did the same thing where if you're the French publisher, you get all rights in French across the world. I think the only thing we didn't do is was Canada, so they can't do like Quebec or French speaking Canada. But you know, because you've got a number of countries in Europe who who speak French, and, and you also a number that, that speak German. Switzerland, if I'm not correct, is part of that. And so right. we we gave them the license to be able to sell basically in any of those countries. And there's and you know now that I think about it, there's actually some countries in Africa who who speak French as well. And so they are allowed to sell their products in the French language to any of those countries. And they also you know every once in a while you'll have a customer like in the United States who wants to buy the French version and they're willing to pay the money to have it shipped from a fr the French distributor or the German version from the German distributor. They're willing to pay the cost to get it here in the United States because it's more of like a collector's item for them. Right. We work with a toy company that has some games and Barry B. Paraphernalia and they, they sell a lot of Spanish translated materials here in the U.S. because they're such a large. So I can see that with French and Spanish and in, in it, well, a whole bunch of different languages in the U.S. Yeah. So it's really interesting to me because I don't think I've heard this before, is that you're not doing it by country. You're doing it by language. And then you're contracting with those publishers rather than using the distributors. That's right. Yeah. And then they can sell to whatever distributor they want. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, when you look at like Switzerland, it's hard to say who's allowed to sell into Switzerland. And and so, you know, do we have a separate publishing company who who wants to go all in on a language? And, you know, if, if, if you're geographically restricted, you're much less likely to be successful because you have to do a smaller print run and you can't sell outside your borders. But if you're going to make the product it's going to be the exact same. One French version is going to be the exact same as the other French version. Right. Or one German version is going to be the exact same as the other German version. So why would two companies duplicate the exact same work and then sell into two different territories when one of them could have done the same amount of work and sold twice as many into more territories? So they're willing to, to pay us more, do a larger print run, and then they're more successful because they own global rights instead of, you know, just a smaller territory. How come you decided to do work with the other publishers rather than doing it yourself? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. The primary reason is that publisher already sells products in their language. They know the distributors, they know the retailers, and they know their own language. It would be very costly for us to have it translated. And then we don't know the market that well. Whereas with this, it's basically money up front and no work and no cost for us. 
So when we get when we make ten thousand dollars in a given month from our licensing fees, that's just ten thousand dollars that goes into pure bottom line profit. There's no cost for us whatsoever in that ten thousand dollars. All the cost is in the publisher, them translating, and then them manufacturing the product. So no additional work, no additional cost, just pure profits for us, which is why we use that model. Okay, and so what? So your licensing fee, I wrote it down here, is six percent. What yeah. do you bring down, if you don't mind sharing, to the bottom line when you're doing it on your own? Yeah, it's probably. I mean, that's good. It's going to be different depending upon what sales channel we sell into. But I would say, you know, our bottom line is probably somewhere around thirty or forty percent, depending upon the sales channel. What? point like this this model works great for launching it particularly when you're having it in demand have you ever thought about what point you would change it and do it on your own not really because you know you, like say a customer calls in and they're upset because their version wasn't right or it's missing a piece and they're speaking in french there's nothing i can do and so we would need we'd have to set up you know, that 30 or 40% and that 6% is, it's, it's not apples to apples. That 6% requires no overhead. That 30% requires an office and staff and insurance and, you know, you name it. So we have a, we have a monthly overhead that we, that we have to pay for so that we can provide customer service for all the customers we have here in the U.S., if we were then to begin translating ourselves into French or German or whatever other language, and we've got customers that are upset in France or in Germany, there's really nothing we could do. So we'd have to hire someone overseas in that country. And now we have to compare what is the amount of money we're making after we have hired staff overseas. And it, it seems more economical for us to just enter the market immediately with a massive publishing company who can sell. 5,000 units or 10,000 units instead of us trickling in, possibly only selling a few hundred units because we don't know the market, we don't know the language, we don't know the distributors, we don't know the retailers, we don't know how to communicate to the customers. Right, right. And, and then you publishing competing. Partner does. Pardon? And that publishing partner does. They know all that. Not only do they know all that, they've already been doing that for, say, 10 years. And that's why they're going to be successful at selling our products in those areas. Right. And then you'd be competing against them too, if you're coming in as a smaller company. That's right. Yeah. 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 That makes a lot of sense. I mean, and I've seen companies do that and they get to a tipping point where they go, okay, this is just too much to manage all these publishers. We've got enough mass now. And there are ways to solve for that language, like telephone interpreting. So you still build out your customer support team, but somebody calls in with another language and you get an interpreter on the phone to help. So yeah. uh, there's a lot of processes that way, but I mean, that's, it's really fascinating how you set up, you've built a bit good global business and it's one you could have done without even traveling internationally. Cause you, you met yeah. people here. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now are you selling so like e-commerce and online and, and all that, do you handle the language or that's all left up to the manufacturers to, to do in those countries? Yeah. Yeah. No, we don't touch, we don't do anything in those countries. 
We only, I, we only personally sell in English in the United States. No, and then we do so, and then yeah, but basically in English in the United States. Everywhere else outside of that, a distributor owns that territory or is selling in that territory, including Canada. So we sell on Amazon in the United States. We sell on GeniusGames.org in the United States, ScienceGames.com, SciencePuzzles.com. Those are all our sites here in the United States. Everywhere else, it's either a foreign publisher who has the language rights, or it's an English distributor who ha- who is distributing those products to the stores in those areas in English. Okay, so if I go on Amazon.com and I search for Genius Games, then I will the English will come up for me, but I can't navigate over to the Spanish. No, that's correct. Because it's completely managed at another place. Right. So it's the, and then your website isn't translated. So, right. So you're, you're not getting, yeah. So you're not building the robust global messaging and marketing, but you're trusting them to know their market better. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's the difference between like a multinational expansion strategy versus a globalization strategy where it's all under one. Yeah. Yeah. And there could be, you know, I I think we could make an argument in the future for building out our website to be to be multiple languages and to geolocate to those sites. However, say it's, you know, Spanish or going back to the the German version we've been talking about, we'd still have to uh, we'd still have to basically sell the German copies that the German publisher owns. Right. Because we don't own those copies that the German publisher does. So if they ordered it from that site, the German publisher, we, we could basically like rebuy those games and ask the German publisher to ship it to the product, to ship it to the customers that came to our site to order. But then, you know, you're kind of coming full circle. Uh, maybe we just act as a retailer to them in, in that case. But, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of those customers in Germany, here's the thing. If, if you're a customer in Germany, you're not going to GeniusGames.org. You're going to wherever customers in Germany buy board games. And so, you know, we'd, we'd have to really build out our marketing platform in that area to make translating our website in that area viable. And if we did that, we're basically then cannibalizing the licensing partner that we have just given the rights to anyway. So, and for us, you know, if I want to make more money, I'm going to make more products or I'm going to push other sales channels in the U.S., I would I probably wouldn't my my growth strategy wouldn't be to to compete with our partners that are already giving us a good amount of uh, profit. So okay, play out on this. So say you take your website and you translate it, and yeah. have they? Is it Genius Games in all the countries, or did they translate the name of it? Genius Games is not translated in any other languages. So it's just Genius. If someone finds Genius Games, they're going to find just GeniusGames.org, the U.S. site. But it won't, it'll, it'll ship. We'll, I think we ship to Canada, but that's the only place we ship to from that site. Yeah. See, I think that there's a co-marketing opportunity, a way to support your distributors. Let me play this out because you'd know for sure. Is if, if they're searching Genius Games and they come to your website and it's all in English, you then put a stop to the buyer and they've got to do more work. But imagine they get there, they see best practice, the globe, 
they drop down, they see the language, and then the language page goes to support your distributor. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. We, so we should then, probably put we should probably put language links to those distributors, or at least like here's some retailers in that area you can purchase products from. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. then you have a landing page and then they'd be able, and then if you put the link to their website where they can buy it, they'd be able to track what's coming in from you. And you're, so then you're supporting the distributor and increasing your revenue coming in. Right. Yeah. Now, another thing that I'm curious about is do you ever check the quality of the translation? Yes, they're required to send us a number of samples. And so after that print run is done, we'll usually get three samples. And then sometimes I'll keep them as souvenirs. And then other times we'll, you know, give them away as a, you know, a, a raffle or something like that. But yeah, usually we'll look through it and just make sure the quality is the same. Do you have somebody that speaks the language, like do a check edit against it? No, that we kind of leave that up to that publisher. And what's your, just the trust in the publisher? Yeah, you know, because we have the publishers that we've been working with, they've translated, you know, most of our games into that language and they're good at it. And the reality is there's a lot of like, there's a lot of lingo in games. There's a lot of terminology that they're going to know as native speakers that we just would never know unless we were, you know, gamers. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's certainly the case. Do you ever worry about them taking liberties and changing messages or meetings or part of the game from the original concept? No, I don't think so. No, there's nothing that there's nothing that sacred in the games that we would care if, if they did that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering about because I've I've seen instances where people will have their distributor do the translation and they change the marketing message to a sales type message, and so mm -hmm. in the games, like as I was asking the question, I was trying to process whether there'd be something, but it's it's pretty factual because it's science, right? Yeah, and most of what they're translating is say the name of the game, and the rule book, and the words on the cards. So, you know, words on the, the words on the board, the words on the cards, and then the rule book. So however they would explain the rules and their language is, you know, really up, up to them. There's not a lot of marketing material in the games. Right. So that's really up to how they decide they want to market the products. And they would be marketing our products along with all their other products. So we would have less control over how they went about marketing them. Right. And then you're tracking numbers and know what you'd expect to see them selling, right? Because right. you have contracts with that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's brilliant how you've set it up. I mean, it's so exciting because yeah, you've got that, you. that natural growth. Yeah. So um, yeah, if you, if you want to explore translating your website, I have a bunch of other ideas on that, but we don't have to capture that now. We're kind of coming to the end of time, which is such a bummer. And you know, this question's coming at you. What's your favorite foreign word? Ah, so I would pr I'd probably say the German word for butterfly, Metaling, I guess is my my rough pronunciation of it. And the How reason is that, that Schmetterling, I think that's, that, that's um, if you're a German speaker, you're probably going, oh, that was horrible. 
But there's this really funny video that I saw that, that describes the way that German people say certain words and how aggressive it is. And my 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 mother-in-law was born in Germany, and my wife grew up speaking uh, German as well as English in the home. And so there was this video we saw about how people in Italy pr pronounced certain words, and then the word in French, and then the word in German. And it, and it was like really beautiful and, and French and, and Italian and Spanish. And then it was this really rough shrekling for butterfly. And I just, that always just stuck with me. And it was just always such a funny thing. So I, oh my I remember God. that word. And you, uh, you still access that video? I'd love to put that in the show notes for people to, yes, to watch. I will. Okay. Yeah, I'll pull that up. Okay. So we'll share that on the, on the, the show notes. And then do you have any recommendations for people that are thinking about exporting or that they're afraid of mm. exporting? That's a great question. I mean, I would, <clears throat> I'd probably say there's a lot of conventions for whatever kind of product, international conventions. And those are probably some of the best places to go to meet other people who are doing that to identify who the exporters are, who the international partners are. There's also just a ton, there's an enormous amount of content online you can find about it. You know, I know Sheltered International, they're a large freight company that we use a lot, as well as Freightos. <clears throat> they both um, have- Can you say the first one again? I didn't catch that. Yeah, Sheltered International. S-H-E-L-T-E-R-E-D, International? I think that's right. Yep, yeah, okay. like I've Sheltered, Sheltered. Yeah, um, and what was the like, next one? And the, the other one is Freightos. It's like freight, but then OS, Freightos. Oh, yeah, um, good name. Sheltered International, anytime we are sending things overseas or or picking things up from China, they're basically like a customs broker and they'll, they'll provide, they'll search for a container. They will broker all of your documentation to get you into the United States or out of the United States. And so we just pay them, you know, if we've got a 40-foot container of product, that needs to leave Shanghai, we'll just call them and say, hey, we've got this product. It's FOB, right on board, or it's X-Works, meaning pick it up from the factory. Can you give us a quote to get it from the factory to our U.S. warehouse with all customs and duty paid? And I say, yep, that'll be you know $7,569. And say, great. And then they take care of that whole shipment, and we pay them that amount of money to move that product here. There's also Freightos, which is sort of doing the same thing, except you don't call a person or send an email to a company. It's like it's an online tool that brokers it out for you and then tells you, here's all the options you have to, to ship that, send that shipment. You can do an LTL, less than truck load, or LCL, less than container load, or you can do full containers, 20-foot containers, 40-foot containers, you know, 40-foot HQs or HC, high-capacity containers. So depending upon what you have, um, they're like an online broker to basically tell you, here's the fastest shipment, here's the lowest price, here's the highest reviewed freight company, and then you just book it right through Freightos. And, and what I was mentioning was they, both, they all have blogs. And so you can just read a lot of the blogs and learn about, you know, what is 
what's happening in, in the movement of product overseas. Okay, so go to conventions to meet people and learn and go to the, the your product, you know, whatever your products are, go there and then go online, particularly to like freight forwarders or logistics people and read their blogs and read. Uh, those are great ideas. Any other ideas for people who are interested in learning more how to export? I mean, that, yeah, call Wendy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Don't call me. Did, I'm too busy. Did, um, did you ever connect with your state export rep? Didn't I put you together with that person? Yeah, they actually have, they've got a great program where we went to a few conventions overseas and they paid for a plane flight and the convention fees and some marketing materials for us to go demo product overseas. So that was great. Wow. Okay. I think that's um, the STEP program in, in Missouri here. Yes, it's called the STEP grant. If you're in any state in the United States, call me and I'll connect you to your STEP grant representative so you can find out how to access flight, conference fees, and what were they, what, what else did they pay for? The flight, the conference fees, a hotel room, and I think some marketing. I mean, it was like, I think they reimbursed us like six and a half thousand dollars to go to the Essen game convention. It was it was a great, great rebate. That's fantastic. I'm so glad that worked out because I had wondered. Yeah. And so that's there's the trade advisors from every state and then the federal government that will help. All right. So, John, where can people reach you or learn more about your games? Yeah, you can. I mean, obviously, you can go to Amazon.com in the U.S. and search for Genius Games. You can go to geniusgames.org or sciencegames.com or sciencepuzzles.com. You can reach out to me, my email, john at geniusgames.org if you want to reach out to me specifically. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to me today. I really Absolutely. appreciate it. Yeah, I had fun. Thanks, Wendy. Okay. Yeah. And for listeners, if you want to know more, go find him or you can go to our global marketing show podcast and listen to other people that have fun experiences like this to share you can find it on where you listen spotify apples or you can just search global marketing show online so thanks so much for listening forward this on to anybody that you know that is in the the gaming industry i'm sure they find it fascinating we'll talk to you next time that's a wrap for this session a big thanks to you for listening to the global marketing show hope you had just as much fun as i did new sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts apple spotify google play and of course on our website if you know someone interested in this topic please tell them about us au revoir for now